This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome aboard, folks. Dr. Charles Parker here one more time, and we have another very interesting wrinkle. It's such a privilege for me to talk to the people that I get a chance to talk to and share with you and share their mind comes in our, and it just enlarges our way of looking at our life. And, and today we have one person who's exemplary in that regard. We've talked about yoga. We've even dropped the name of Paramahansa Yogananda in the past regarding meditation and the autobiography of yoga. We have a woman today who is a yoga follower who has written a book that is really in the direction of Paramahansa Yogananda's work called The Jewel of Abundance, my friends. And her name, I'm going to try to pronounce this correctly, is Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien. So Yogacharya is, she tells me, a word like reverend because she is a spiritual master of a sense. So did I pronounce it correctly, ma'am? Uh, you did a great job. And Yogacharya translated means teacher of yoga. <laughs> so it's, oh, it's really kind of more simple, really. Okay. <laughs> is a teacher and um, it's, you know, it's used as a title of respect, but that's basically what it means, that, that you teach yoga philosophy. Oh, fantastic. Well, that's great. It's great to get a little more language into the, into the actions. So one of the things, I'm going to introduce you and tell everybody what you're doing, and then we'll go ahead and get more into the conversation. Ellen is a teacher in the tradition of Kriya Yoga, who makes ancient philosophy and practice accessible to the modern mind. Very interesting. Through her many books, including the one we mentioned a moment ago, Ellen provides events, programs. She inspires both newcomers and experienced practitioners to create lives of abundant wholeness with purpose and wisdom. She is the founder and spiritual director of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment with headquarters in San Jose, California. And the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment is a meditation center and spiritual community in that tradition of Kriya Yoga, based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. I love his name. It's such a great name. He came to the U.S. in 1920. He wrote a book called Autobiography of Yoga, which is a deeply spiritual, interesting transformational book. If you really want to sort of step out of yourself into a whole different time and deeper perspective, uh, you would love that book. So Ellen travels internationally. She is sought as a teacher, speaker, and retreat leader. She leads two successful nonprofit organizations, has been, get this, the recipient of several awards for community service, including the 2015 Mahatma Gandhi Award for the promotion of religious pluralism from the Hindu American Foundation. Just as important, she's a wife, mother, and grandmother. Her life in all its fullness brings the timeless Vedic tradition, teaching traditions out of ancient India into modern lifestyle for seekers of all faiths who learn and yearn for a more spiritually conscious, fulfilled way of life. Now, all that sounds pretty deep. There are a lot of words I was obviously stumbling over some of them because it's not in my 
ordinary vocabulary, but I think it's really interesting to bring a person with these different and profound insights into our everyday lives. Whether we're driving to work, we can learn something from you, and, and we just so much appreciate it. So thanks for joining us, Ellen. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's really a delight to uh, be part of your program and to learn more about the fabulous work that you're doing in our world to help people lead happier lives, clearer lives, healthier lives. Thanks mm -hmm. for that. Well, thank you. It's a, it's a question of, it's not really a question. It's a process of working together the way I see it, because your mission is equally important. And, I, and uh, Ellen has her own podcast, by the way, folks, which we'll have a link for in the show notes. So let's get started with your narrative and, I mean, who you are as a person. How did you go over into this relatively, for the commonplace person, arcane, deep set of thinking, which is Hindu, it's Vedic, it's Indian, it's so many different things that we're just not accustomed to. How did you make that turn in your life? <laughs> well, it's a little bit mysterious in that I'm a native Californian. I, I was raised in the Bay Area. I was raised in a non-religious family. And I was a, a child with deep spiritual yearning. And I always kind of figured psychologically, uh, my role was to balance out the family system. <laughs> so you get one, you know, in every family. And, and I was a little kid who was always like, okay, well, aren't we going to pray before we eat? You know, my parents would look at me like, well, okay. So I had that deep spiritual yearning, but I didn't really know what to do with it. And when I went to college, I began to study philosophy and you know, just was curious. And I went to different churches and spiritual centers, and I never quite find, found anything that answered my questions. But in 1979, I went to a lecture by Roy Eugene Davis, who is my teacher, has been all these years. And turns out he, he's an American yogi from the Midwest in America. Mm -hmm. And uh, when he was 18 years old, he read that book, The Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. And when he read it, he just knew that was his path. And he knew Yogananda was his teacher. <laughs> and so he left home. He hitchhiked across America, landed wow. on Yogananda's doorstep and said, you know, I'm your student. <laughs> would, would Really? You yeah, would you accept me? So Yogananda said yes, and he, he trained him, and uh, he became then a monk in that order, was ordained by Yogananda. And, no, and that later, must have been unbelievable. And I didn't know Yogananda was living. When did he actually pass? How how In the 1950s, early 1950s, he passed oh, on, I think, 50, 1953. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, my teacher had a few years with him, and then actually after Yogananda died, he stayed with the organization for a little while, and but he was so young, you know, and then he went out on his own to learn about the world. He went into the army and, you know, various things like that. But he, he stayed true to his spiritual mission, and uh, then he began to teach independently. And many years later, in, from 1949, he met Yogananda in 1949. 1979 is when I met him. And uh, he, I went to a lecture, a friend invited me to a lecture, and he, he, he gave kind of a basic lecture in terms of what Vedic philosophy is, which is this insight into the nature of reality that says, you know, there's one reality, it's expressing as all that is. People call it by different names, but basically it's, it's one. And because it is one, we are expressions of that. Each one of us, you know, a divine expression. So that's a, kind of the basic philosophy. And 
I really liked that. I really resonated with that. Mm -hmm. And then he taught us to meditate, which I think was the key thing, because in this teaching tradition, we say, well, it's not enough to just have information. You have to be able to validate things in your own experience. So it's highly experiential. So I found that I like the experience, you know, with my heart, my direct experience, but also that my intellect was welcome. I didn't have to check my intellect at the door. I could question, I could study. So that's basically how I found my path. And once I did, I found that it was enough to keep me interested for decades. And so I'm still here. Now, he was, she, where did he locate? Where, how did that connection actually geographically take place for you? Well, his um, teaching center is in the in southern United States. He's in uh, Georgia at uh, Center for Spiritual Awareness. He re- runs a retreat center. He he's still active. He's uh, eighty eight years old, I believe mm-hmm. now. Still teaching. He's a good testament to what healthy living and meditation will do for the body and the brain. Because he's still mm-hmm. traveling around teaching, clear as a bell, writing and uh, speaking and doing what he does and. Um, And our center, which was established in 1981, is out in California area in San Mm -hmm. Jose. Well, that must be fun then. Do you, at your place, do you actually then, how does it work being a part of your center and your activity out there? Do you have meetings every night? Do you meet once a week? How does all that work? Well, it's kind of a full service (laughs) meditation center, you know, so, you know, it's, it's open to all people from all faith traditions, you know, who are interested in meditation. There are, we have services on Sunday that are inspirational, that include a time of silent meditation. They're universal in their approach with a positive message. So people come, you know, from all different backgrounds uh, to experience that. We offer meditation every day. People can just drop in for the meditation or they can come and learn how to meditate for free. We do that a couple times a month. And um, we have an institute where we train people in yoga philosophy, healthy living Ayurveda, you know, in terms of healthy lifestyle practices and community service. We have a youth program. See what I mean? Soup to nuts. You know, we have, wow. we have a youth program. We have retreats. Um, we have a beautiful center that is open to the community where people can come and experience the meditation garden any day of the week. So there's probably a whole lot more that I'm, I'm leaving out, but we serve just about anybody who wants to learn about healthy lifestyle, meditation, universally oriented, positive message of spirituality. That's us. Well, I'm going to ask you a very simple question that's quite superficial in one respect, but I think of interest to our listeners, certainly to myself, the perspective that I bring to this conversation is that I practiced meditation myself for a long period of time, but I had a specific training module and I was reading, I didn't have a person, I read a ton of different books and they were all on on Zen, Zen meditation. So I was wondering, and of course, in that situation, uh, then I, my wife and I took a course in guided imagery which was a meditative experience with an inner advisor and all that. That was many years ago. And I had some very, very interesting experiences following those, those trainings. But I'm wondering how your type of meditation, I'm, I read Paramahansa, how does your type of meditation take place, really? And then what would be the contrast or the similarity to Zen meditation? Well, the type of meditation that you learn in Kriya Yoga, 
is really learning how to focus the mind initially so that your thought activity becomes uh, quieter, calmer. So it's taught very simply, like you can, you can do that by simply observing your breath. And it is, you connect that to the actual physical sensation. We say watching the breath, but of course you're not, you're not looking at the breath, but you're attending to the breath with your Mm -hmm. awareness and you feel the breath, you know, the feeling of the cool air coming in your nostrils and you feel the warmer air going out again. So you, you just, basically you give the mind something to focus on. So it stops moving around, jumping around from thought to thought, to sensory experience, to thought. And that allows those thought waves to settle down. And in the yoga tradition, it's taught that those thought waves that occupy our minds most of the time, you know, through sensory experience and memory and imagination and all the ways that we have thought activity generally obscures the inner light or the consciousness itself. Mm -hmm. We're distracted. We're distracted by that. So meditation is a way of letting the mind, we don't try to stop the mind. We just give it something else to do so that it becomes one-pointed with our attention. And when the mind becomes one-pointed, then it quiets down and you can experience your inner self. Now, do you have any specific, this is an inane question, I apologize because you're a deep person, but I, there are different types of meditation. The one I was familiar with is Zen meditation. Requires a certain posture, pillow, the way your hands are, a certain place that you place yourself to. Is your meditation similar or different in that regard? I think it's probably similar in the sense that there's this correlation between, you know, when the body moves, the mind moves. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we teach seated meditation um, with the posture. You know, somebody asked a great yoga teacher, you know, what is the best posture for meditation? Mm -hmm. And he said, the one in which the mind is still. (laughs) I thought that was so fabulous. That covers it. (laughs) So basically we teach people to sit in a comfortable position with the spine straight and comfortable so that you're not distracted by the body, but generally Mm -hmm. the spine straight, straight, the head erect. And probably one difference between the yoga meditation we teach and Zen meditation is that often, as I understand it, Zen meditation is eyes open and uh, yoga meditation is eyes closed. I was doing Zen meditation wrong then. It was funny. And then I did, I would do yoga as well, you know, do the stretches and the, and all that sort of thing. So that's very interesting. So I want to turn our attention if I can to your book, because I think one of the reasons that we really are pleased to have you on to discuss is because you have You know, I'm so interested in the problem of reductionistic thinking and dichotomies because, and it's really what you alluded to uh, for a moment as you started speaking, because so much of what we do that's counterproductive is codifying, separating, dichotomizing, and uh, breaking things apart in some way to assess them without looking at the complexity, the entirety, and the connections. Absolutely. (laughs) So then the issue in that regard is, I think that, and that's what we try to do at Core Brain Journal. We're saying, hey, these different things are hanging out out here and people are getting well with them. Why don't we really understand them instead of 
thinking reptilian ways about them and being scared of them and frightened and don't know how to discuss them and don't even develop the language to discuss them effectively. So, but your, your point is that there is a whole nother spiritual practice kind of what you would say would be objective, if you will. I don't know if that word is too harsh or not, but wherein an individual can connect their lives, their actual how they're living their lives, it's sort of a utilitarian bent, and can be, in a way, successful with their lives, with the meditation coming together to make that entirety express itself in a connected way instead of a, a different way. Sort of the, you know, the Judeo-Christian, I don't know about uh, Jewish tradition, I know, I know the Christian one, because I was raised this way, possessions and places and things are not good. They're sort of like keep away from them and stay with the spiritual life. So could you address some of those that, I don't know that I said it very articulately, but those dichotomies between prosperity and success and spiritual practice? Oh, I'd love to. And thanks for bringing that up because I'm really all about seeing if we can heal that divide between our so-called spiritual life and material life, because there really isn't one. You know, it's a continuum. We're spiritual beings uh, living a spiritual life in really a spiritual world. So when we look at our life in that way, we find that it's so much more, it's health promoting and it's so much more encouraging to live our life as our spiritual practice, rather than thinking that, okay, I have my spiritual practice over here, you know, I meditate, I pray, I do whatever I do in my religious tradition, and then I go to work and live that life. Mm -hmm. No, you know, that the, the ideal is that we learn how to be awake to our spiritual nature and allow that consciousness to inform all that we do. And from my perspective, you know, ideally it's, it's a positive message about who we are and the life that we're here to lead and that the spiritual life gives us, no matter what tradition you're from, you, you can find tools in your spiritual path and your religious path that will help you lead a more uh, conscious, prosperous, ethical life. So it starts with, you know, not dividing it up. Well, you know, as you were speaking, the thought that occurred to me, and I really hadn't thought about this before, although I knew something about the topic that we would be covering. I mean, it, it was pretty clear where you were going with it from just a title point of view. But the operational term occurred to me that it's really, in a way, gives a person permission to be more contributory. You know, that it has a, an affirmative, it's okay to realize the fullness of yourself in your life, in your relationship with other people and that that's going to be part of the mission and part of the objective, as opposed to somehow it being selfish or guilt-provoking. Absolutely. And, you know, what I'm looking at is that our way of being in the world allows us, you know, let's put it this way. We'll have a little caveat with it. You know, mm -hmm. approached in, in the right way and for a higher purpose allows us actually to develop spiritually, to develop our higher potentials. So if I can, for a moment, just sort of extrapolate on that. So please, please. Um, the book, the, the Jewel of Abundance, I'm drawing from the ancient Vedic tradi tradition, these four universal life goals. And the first one, the first goal is to live with higher purpose. 
so that we're all here according to a divine plan and purpose. And we're here to live out that purpose, you know, mm-hmm. to, to wake up to the truth of what we are and then to express our unique gifts and talents in a way that serve the greater good that everybody has something to contribute and everybody has something to contribute to the whole. And, you know, we can kind of figure that out when we look around and we look at nature and we look at human beings and the diverse gifts that we have, you know, that we're we're all here to contribute something. So the first, the first goal is to live with higher purpose. The second goal, which is just fascinating because these are spiritual goals. They're about living a you know, spiritually awakened life. And the second goal is wealth. And that's what the book is about. So is it kind of fascinating that there's these four ancient goals? First one, you know, live with higher purpose. And then you find the second one that's wealth. And you think, oh my gosh, you know, how do those fit together? <laughs> I've never heard that before. Right. <laughs> but the way it is put forth is that this wealth that we are to learn about and learn how to be in the world skillfully is because if we're going to fulfill that purpose that we're here to do and what we're here to be and to offer, then we're going to need to learn you know, how to draw the resources that we need to fulfill that purpose. That's just common sense. You know, we, yeah. we, <laughs> we need to be able to live skillfully. Now, I'm going to have a whole lot of fun and tell you the third goal, Dr. Parker, because (laughs) this one, then we have wealth, and then the third goal is pleasure. Sounds like fun. I know. Doesn't it sound good? (laughs) So we have live with higher purpose, prosper, and thrive. And then the third goal is enjoy life. And again, this is really when we, if we look at it deeply enough, it's not a hedonistic goal. It's, it's a common sense goal because if we don't enjoy our life, you know, it's not good for our health for one thing, it's not good for our relationships Mm -hmm. and we can't really fulfill our highest purpose without including what I would call the soul's joy in it. And you know what uh, Joseph Campbell called our bliss, you know, which that, that's mm-hmm. how the yogis look at it. You know, this is the bliss of the soul. We're here to experience that and to know that. So even this goal to enjoy life points to a spiritual purpose. And of course, it takes some education to find out how we enjoy life without losing our way. And then the fourth goal, which kind of ties it all up, is to realize freedom in this lifetime, which the yogis would call enlightenment, to be completely free, to be liberated in this life. So we have live with higher purpose, prosper, thrive, enjoy your life, and find freedom while you're at it. So what I want to say about that is that when we look at wealth, it's offered as a life goal, but for a purpose. So it's not, we don't find when we look at this this system, we don't find wealth and pleasure first on the list for a good reason, right? (laughs) It has a utilitarian value. (laughs) Exactly. So we have, you know, this goal, okay, live with higher purpose, you know, learn, learn what the universe is about, learn what you're here for, and learn how to cooperate with nature, with the divine nature of life, um, learn how to live ethically, learn how to cooperate with the creative energy of the universe, you know, all, all of that is there. And then prosper so that you can do, you know, what you're here to do. So it's not for its own sake. You know, there there are a lot of books on prosperity, right? You know, how to get rich and all of that. Mm -hmm. This book is not that. This book is about 
how to live with higher purpose and have your relationship with your resources connect to that. Well, it sounds like resources, and please help me with this point, give you a certain internal expression of authority in terms of achieving those higher values. Because when you have wealth, which is a very large topic, it isn't necessarily dollars in the bank, but it has a certain measure of, it sounds like internal achievement and authority associated with it that gives you permission in a way to do more of what you are really um, intending to do. I love that definition. That's wonderful. This connection with inner authority. Is that how you put it? I yeah. really like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. And it does. It implies sort of a can-do ability, doesn't it? And I agree. And of course, the book is about that, that our wealth is not limited to money uh, or to financial well-being, although that's a part of it. And mm-hmm. you know, we, we, we shouldn't separate that out. Mm-hmm. But when, when we look deeply, we all know in a sense that our greatest wealth is our spiritual wealth or our inner resources that shows itself up as our health, as our ability to be creative, our relationships, all of that is included in our wealth. And then you can have fun with it. Yes, that, <laughs> so, and then, then we're on to the next goal. <laughs> yeah, you really, because it's really okay to, once you have come in contact with that objective, that there is a purpose, and it sounds a little codified, but it doesn't. It's really a larger purpose, and that there's a certain reassurance, internal reassurance about the next step, but that you could then enjoy it, that you can then have fun with it. And you can, and that fun then is a reasonable objective as opposed to not being a reasonable objective. It is. And all of this with regard to the four goals of life, including wealth and pleasure, has us look at and examine and discern what it really is to prosper. What is the nature of happiness? Mm-hmm. What, what actually brings us happiness and what seems to bring us happiness, but then we find later leads to sorrow. So it's not always what we think or what we've always thought. And that's why I said in the beginning that what I liked about yoga is it invited me to bring my mind along. So, um, (laughs) you know, as well as my heart, as well as my faith, but but to look at, well, what is this happiness that we all want and we're all looking for and how can we find it? Well, you know, that next thing is... Help me with this point, self-satisfaction. I'm trying to tease apart. I'm trying to actually formulate so I can ask the question correctly. And, but it seems to me that one of the things that happens in the ordinary, and I say Christian just because it's my perspective, uh, but is this whole self-satisfaction thing that there's a little bit of a problem there in that this is contradictory to an arrest that happens, that can happen, with self-satisfaction. So that what happens is if a person gets into that pleasure, it's a living pleasure. It's a fulfillment activity that has a connectedness as opposed to a self-fulfillment. I'm going to be happy and I'm going to be gratified. I'm going to let myself go with whatever makes me feel good, drinking two bottles of wine a night or whatever. Yeah. And that's part of the examination, you know, just, just as you say, you know, we look at, and interestingly enough in the yoga tradition, it's not so much, things are not necessarily restricted. There's more of an attitude of, well, check it out. Uh-huh. <laughs> so if you want to have pizza and ice cream for dinner, go ahead, but then look very carefully 
at, you know, what is the end result of that? How do you feel? And what is the quality of your thinking and your mind the next morning when you want to meditate? You're likely to find that you feel heavy and sluggish. And, and so use your mind and compare and explore, you know, and there's lots of teachings about you know, the sensory experiences that we're sort of conditioned to think our way to happiness, you know, satisfying that's, our desires. That's the word I was looking for. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. We find that, well, yeah, you know, we do enjoy those sensory experiences. Mm -hmm. So there's no use denying that, that we do. But if we're examining, we see that those sensory experiences are short-lived. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like you mentioned, okay, in, in a couple of bottles of wine or whatever. So you have one glass of wine and then the tendency is, oh, I felt really happy with that. Let me just have another one. So we begin to have that mindset that the source of our happiness came from that sensory experience. And then we want to repeat it or find something else like it. And then mm -hmm. we get caught. And the yoga tradition says, you know, this is a trap. And so this one you need to be careful of. It doesn't mean that you can't enjoy something, a sensory enjoyment, but you need to recognize it for what it is. And that ultimately it won't give you unconditional happiness. It only gives you temporary happiness or temporary pleasure. And Yogananda, interestingly enough, you know, when his first talk in, in America, when he came to America in 1920, he gave a talk on the ship on the way over. <laughs> they invited yeah. him to speak in the lounge, if you can believe that. Yeah. He was a young man, hardly knew any English. They gave this talk, and his talk was entitled The Science of Religion. And it, you would think it was a, like a comparative religious talk, but it wasn't that. He talked about how everybody is looking for happiness and that you can just... If you look in your own experience, you can see that every day, you know, we wake up and yeah, we're looking for happiness. If it's a cup of coffee, we want that. If it's meditation, we want that. If we're thirsty, we want a drink of water. We're looking for things that, that are going to make us feel more comfortable, happy, satisfied. And he said, that's universal. But if we look very deeply, we're not looking for happiness that comes and goes, you know, happiness that will satisfy us and then later disappoint us like that. And so mm -hmm. he said, you know, what is this happiness that we're looking for? And ultimately he said, we're looking for unconditional happiness. And the only thing that can provide that is that which in itself is unconditional, which he said is God. So that, you know, we're all looking for something else and that something else we're looking for is God. So that was his scientific way of, you know, looking at the nature of what it is we're seeking and, you know, how we come to, to name that, which I thought was really brilliant. <laughs> it's beautiful. It definitely is beautiful because it actually is a great segue to number four. I mean, in a way you've said number four, but I was, mm -hmm. was going to ask you to tease that apart a little bit because I think so much is said. There's so many misunderstandings and I don't think we could begin to cover it in, you know, another 20 minutes or whatever, but that whole business of what enlightenment actually is, where does it actually take a person? What is the objective? What does a person want to do when they achieve a certain measure of enlightenment? Where should that take them? What should they be when they, when they get to that fourth level? Because they've actually put pleasure in perspective, which was number three. They, they're okay with enjoying it and they start thinking about happiness, just as you were talking about Yogananda on the boat, but then they go to this next level, which is this whole unconditional sense. It has a certain implication of connectedness 
and enlightenment there. How does, how can you wrap that up a little bit for us? I appreciate it. <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> a, yeah, that's a tough one, that one. So, you know, one of the definitions of um, enlightenment or, you know, liberation of consciousness that I really like is that you're free to be happy for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very interesting point. How easy is that? I mean, that's such a delightful way to say it. It's so comfortable. Yeah, it's really lovely. And and actually, you know, it's one of those, it is really kind of like a little Zen saying, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. it, it makes you think, wow, wow, what does that mean? It's like a little koan, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, because, you know, in this when we study yoga, that the ego self or the false self that we call it, the sense of separate identity, which by the way, the yoga tradition is not about getting rid of the ego. It's just sort of coming to know what it is. It has an important function to play. Otherwise we wouldn't be able to relate (laughs) to other Mm. people, you know, Mm -hmm. as as who we are, but it's really loosening the grip of identifying with the ego. And because the ego as its function is to posit this sense of separate self, what I've noticed about it is that the, the ego-based self has a grand commitment to unhappiness because it's all about being separate. And so it is always finding that there's something missing, right? It, it, yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. It's not connected to wholeness. That's its whole function. You know, I, I am it, I'm separate, I'm on my own. And so there's a pervasive sense of unhappiness that underlies the ego-based self. So enlightenment or liberation is becoming free of that grip and seeing that we operate through the ego. It's a function of mind, but we are not that. We're not limited to that. And that reason that you had just a moment ago, happiness without a reason, would be the ego superimposing itself on the reality of the moment. Yeah. Or that, you know, what happens is that we tie our happiness to something external all the time. Okay. I I see. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it came from, you know, a sense pleasure. It comes from my connection to another person because we do experience happiness in all those ways, except Mm -hmm. that the happiness that doesn't leave us, that doesn't fail us is actually our innate sense of well-being or contentment. So waking up is disconnecting that tendency to ascribe our own well-being, our contentment, our happiness to something external. Because when we do that, you know, we're bound to that, right? We keep, we keep looking keep for chasing that. chasing it. Yeah. Keep chasing it around and around and around. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You're so profound. It's amazing. <laughs> and you do it so easily. I mean, it's sort of like we're just having a conversation here and you just said so much in such a short period of time. Uh, a little bit of, it's a little bit mind-blowing, to tell you the truth. <laughs> well, that's great. That's, that's exactly what, what we want. I'm enjoying the conversation. I appreciate your insights and questions. It's just, it's just very enjoyable. Well, you have this presentation, and that's not the correct word, but I'm just using it, of not being encumbered. Even as you talk, you have a delivery that's unencumbered by what ifs and maybes and and so on and then you say it in such a plain and simple way i mean that the idea i mean several several ideas but one of them is that you can be happy without a reason you know you don't have you know sort of happiness beyond reason 
It's really liberating just to think about that, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And that is, I really like that too. (laughs) Yeah, that was brilliant. it can evolve into a kind of a practice for us, you know, like, am I willing, you know, to be happy for no reason? Or do I have to have this or that in order to be happy? It's a good exploration, isn't it? It certainly is. Oh my gosh. It's really very interesting. Well, our time is running a little low here. I mean, this has been a great conversation. Uh, You're making such a very significant positive contribution to the lives of the listeners. we Think about this. This one's going to be one that's easy to run back and play it again because, and I apologize to the listeners for being confused myself and saying things from an inarticulate way, trying to get the understanding myself. But I just think it's great the way you put it all together and, and packaged it in an understandable way. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. You know, you made it really easy and enjoyable. So, you know, I think the goals were met in our conversation today. Really? Well, I definitely, I know all of us learned a lot from you. I think the thing to do is just listening to you, uh, you know, I don't get up to Northern California much, but I'd say, boy, that would be a fun place to hang out just to see the evolution of, because people that are going to your facility are evolving and they're in various different states of questioning themselves in their in their evolution because it's an it's an evolutionary activity the way you think more comprehensively about your life and your contribution of your life and it just sounds so darn interesting to come up there so why don't you tell people where where you can be connected how they can connect with you up there and how we can put ways to connect with you in the show notes, if you will, please. Thank you so much. And I do hope you'll come and visit us. That would be wonderful. I'd love to. Center for Spiritual Enlightenment is located in San Jose, California, the Rose Garden area. And uh, it's open every day. And you can find out about the center at our website, which is csecenter.org, csecenter.org. And um, you're welcome. And there you can see a calendar there for all kinds of things that go on retreats and classes and so forth. And then on my author website, which is Ellen Grace O'Brien. And that's a O'Brien with an A, O-B-R-I-A-N dot com. You can find out about my online classes. You can find out about this new book we've been talking about, The Jewel of Abundance. And everything, everything is there. I think that's it. I think I have to go read the book. I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah, I I'm, hope you will. I'm definitely stimulated by the whole conversation because I think it's everything you're talking about is so conspicuously present in so many conversations in terms of just when you do psychotherapy with somebody or if you're just talking commonplace at dinner. I mean, it just is amazing. Absolutely. And, you know, we've had, well, we have another piece of our work that called Carry the Vision and carrythevision.org where we're teaching these methods of meditation in the schools and in the prison population and, you know, other sectors of society. And wow, you know, what, what we see in the classrooms, you know, what the teachers report when students are taught how to calm themselves <laughs> and how to find their own center of well-being and, and uh, happiness it makes a profound difference in their lives. What a great title that is, Carry the Vision. And I'm stuck right now because I'm trying to think of this guy that I talked to who is in California, who's very involved with the prison population out there, who has a message that's similar but not quite as structured as yours is. And I'm going to find it. I'll send it to you because you would want to know him and he would want to know. He's just a great guy. It was a Super interview, and uh, I'll publish it in the show notes, folks, for those of you who are wondering. I won't keep it to myself. 
put it in the show notes and I'll send it out to you, Alan, because I think that's a population that is so underserved. But, you know, in a way, it's really all of us are underserved. If we're not really thinking about this in a larger way, it doesn't matter whether you're in a prison or whether you're outside. You could be in a prison, whether you're in a prison or not, if you don't really have the vision and start thinking about these things more comprehensively. It's true to be able to think comprehensively and and to be able to live a fulfilled life. And there's so much potential that we all have wherever we are to learn more about ourselves, to learn more about how we can change our minds to help us live more effectively and more prosperously and with with greater joy. So well said. (laughs) Thank you. Fantastic conversation. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. You know, love to have you back sometime. We have to see where all this is going to go, but I really appreciate uh, your taking the time to be with us all. It's been very, it's been profound. It's been enlightening and it's been in a certain uh, sense, very reassuring to dance around these ideas a little bit. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the invitation. I'm, I'm honored to have had this conversation with you. And again, thank you for the really good work that you're doing in the world. Thank you. Rest well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Core Brain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because, as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive, misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications, like those written for ADHD, are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.